Projections for where people will be living in New Zealand in 20 years' time indicate numbers in some regions could come to a halt or even go backwards. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks what the implications are for provincial areas facing possibly smaller and definitely older populations. Driving out of the city like so many others at this time of year, leaving the metropolitan areas a little down on resident numbers and temporarily boosting numbers in the provinces. But the most recent statistics New Zealand population projections indicate that for the regions, the changes on the horizon are less than rosy. They include slowing growth, a population ageing faster than in urban areas, with some areas possibly even facing a decline in the number of people living there. We have a, a huge range of information sources. It would be too difficult to list in one go. But, but certainly uh, censuses are our foundation for our figures and obviously provides us very rich information at those small geographic areas. Um, we also use births and deaths over that time period, um, international migration Figures. Statistics New Zealand uses a huge pool of information to make its projections. The manager of population statistics, Andrea Blackburn, says the long-term trend for the young to move to the cities is still there, but other changes are now creeping in. We are seeing a growth in the 65-plus population, but we're actually seeing now the other age groups starting to decline. So up until pretty much this year, We've seen the older working age population, 40 to 64, still increasing, but now even that age group is starting to decline in those areas. I'm Philippa Tolley, and in this Insight programme, three of my colleagues report from three different provincial areas, Southland, Taranaki and Gisborne. All face a population in 20 years that could be dramatically older and possibly in decline. Turn right, then take the second right. It's generally small rural towns most under threat of losing people, places such as Stratford and Wairoa in the North Island and Gore in the South. While such projections are not an absolute prediction, they are important as a great deal of planning is based on these figures, as Andrea Blackburn explains. The long-term fiscal planning that the Treasury does, provision of health services, and we provide support and help to the Ministry of Health in, in working through those figures, to education, to local authorities, so they, a lot of the local authorities tend to use these as a basis for their planning. Practically, that means facilities such as hospitals, schools and tertiary institutions. The performance of the regions is given an annual ranking by Business and Economic Research Limited, or BIRL. One of its senior economists, Jason Luang-Wai, specialises in regional economic development, and he argues that population size has a major influence on the economic well-being of a region but he also says the figures are not necessarily guaranteed. A lot of people actually accept the Stats NZ population projections and start planning towards those. So when Stats NZ says your population's going to decline, it suddenly woe is me, and let's start looking at how we deal with a declining population. Now, if you flipped it around and you said population as a result or, an actual, or actually could be a driver of economic growth or opportunity within a region, you could actually determine your own population targets and where you actually want to be as a region and then work towards those rather than, than vice versa. 
But how are the regions reacting to these projections, and are there plans for them to achieve their own targets in the next 20 years? My colleague Steve Wilde headed to Southland from his base in Queenstown to speak to people in the south about how they feel about the future for the region. Invercargill, it's a city that was built for 100,000 people. Just driving along the wide four-lane boulevards here, you can really see the optimism the city's original planners had for the place. It was, of course, the same in the 1970s when the government statistics pointed to massive population growth here, mostly on the back of the Think Big projects like the aluminium smelter, and always there was the talk of oil and the swirling ocean of the Great South Basin. Today that optimism seems to be all but gone. The city has less than 48,000 people and that's shrinking. The smelter looks to be in trouble, no oil is being pumped and a rapidly ageing population coupled with young people who virtually leave on completion of their high school studies as the Southland Chamber of Commerce calling the situation a demographic time bomb. So what is the future of this city and its verdant hinterland? Well, that's a question I'm on my way to put to the Invercargill Mayor, Tim Shadbolt. When I first arrived here, I asked very similar questions to those you're asking me. Why is it that no one wants to come and live here? It's, you know, very low crime rate, very affordable housing, really nice people to live with and work alongside. The, I guess, gurus and people write books about population decline and, and that pointed the finger at Sunbelt Drift, which they said was happening all around the world, that people who lived in Tasmania wanted to go to the Gold Coast, people who lived in Chicago wanted to go to Florida, um, and that same kind of trend is happening here. Um, the other factor was urbanisation, and this year, for the first time in the history of humankind, 50% of people now live in large cities. Again, it's a very difficult one for a little council down here in Invercargill to try and uh, reverse. And the third factor, of course, was childbirth. In the good old days, well, not even that long ago, it was common to have three or four children. Now it's more likely to be one or two, and later in life, so that there's a, a bigger gap between the generations. And those are the key three factors, really, that will determine our future in many ways. Southland contributes about $4 billion to New Zealand's gross domestic product, about 3% of the national total. The Southland Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Richard Hay has been pondering the question of how to attract new people to come and live there. We've got to be able to have the, the positions here for people to come to Invercargill. Uh, other things do work against Invercargill and, and we can have some really good positions available but can we attract the whole family? I mean, we've had examples where we can attract the individual to a position uh, because they know, or, or even a business to the area because they know it makes business sense uh, to be able to establish here and run their business from here but being able to attract the whole family down is another matter as well. I mean really it isn't the hibiscus coast, there's, there's nobody is, is touting that it is and there is a certain amount of mindset uh, of people looking at coming to Invercargill and that's a very very hard one to overturn. It's the weather isn't it? 
Well, it's not today, but it, it, it generally is a mindset that people have. They seem to think that the further south they go, the worse the weather is. Uh, but there are other things as well. We need to retain structure such as schooling, uh, edu uh, education in general, uh, but also uh, health, policing, all those sorts of issues uh, are issues that the wider family look at before they start the move. Currently, well over 90% of the Southland population is European, with Pacific Islanders and Asians well underrepresented, although there is a considerable Māori community, especially in Bluff. Venture Southland's Enterprise and Strategic Projects Manager Steve Canney says big energy projects like the planned lignite to diesel plant near Matoda, oil and gas in the Great South Basin, and the dairy industry will significantly alter that demographic ratio. He says along with that will be a major shift in the way the fertile land is used to produce food. As soon as you attract a workforce into, the, say, the oil and gas industry or minerals industry, for example, often they're, they're a workforce that are highly mobile. Some people choose to work and, and move out of the area. They don't uh, put down roots, if you like, and they don't have an affinity with the, with the people or the, the culture of the place. But... Um, you know, the reality of that situation is you just have to be proactive in, in trying to um, promote those values and, um, and encourage people to look at long-term settlement. So if we, if we look 20 years out, I mean, what do you see? How do you see? What's the makeup? What industries are here? Who's come? Who's gone? And what's it look like? Yeah, well, I think um, in 20 years' time, the, the sort of things that we have to uh, be very careful about is, is um, protecting our water resources. They are the most valuable commodity to a region such as um, Southlands. It's the principle of the basis of productive systems. We produce a lot of food in our region, and I think that what we will find is a greater focus on protein production. Steve Canney sees a future where Southland farmers look to develop grain crops that are better and healthier. This is already being done in other parts of the world where certain types of barley, for example, have been developed which are higher in total fibre and lower in starch, and new varieties of white wheat that's being used to make bread, which is less refined and much healthier. For over 40 years, this giant aluminium smelter here at TY Point has been the backbone of the regional economy. It employs nearly 800 workers, uses energy from the Manapuri power station and contributes over half a billion dollars in foreign exchange to the Southland economy. Recently, the smelter company has been pushing Meridian Energy for a better deal for the electricity it buys. The smelter's parent company, Rio Tinto, has indicated it will close unprofitable sites, but New Zealand Aluminium Smelter's general manager, Ryan Kavanagh, is confident the smelter will be here in the long term. I see the vision for the, for the future really building on the niche market that we have, um, um, you know, uh, produced for ourselves over, well, since the mid-90s, which is, you know, kind of like a boutique smelter. We make the aluminium products that others either can't make or don't want to make because it's difficult. And we've used really good innovation techniques and good old-fashioned Kiwi ingenuity to really, you know, nut that out and uh, make, make products that others can't. So, so we're, we're, we're differentiating, differentiating ourselves on, on, on that basis. Um, going forward, you know, we're up against the pressures of competing internationally, so we have to make sure that we are internationally competitive, you know, and the biggest driver of, of cost really for any smelter is, is power. So, as you said before, you know, we've, we've, we've got to get this, um, this power contract um, renegotiated with Meridian, 
Um, we also um, then need to make sure that we can control everything that we can control. So uh, doing all the work to make sure that we're lowering costs, to make sure that we're, we're, we're um, viable and we're competitive. And if we do that and we do that well, like we're doing a lot of great work now, we can, we can be here for another 20, 30, 40 years. And we want to be here for another 20, 30, 40 years. Steve Canny says New Zealand should be selling its energy cheaply to generate overseas funds. And the government should be questioning what the long-term effects of its asset sales program will mean for the provinces like Southland. The only real advantage that we have as a region is that because of our, uh, the significance of our renewable energy uh, production, we have an ability to reflect that in our pricing, our domestic market pricing. And if we are able to carry that natural advantage through or that economic advantage through, then we can remain very competitive in some of these areas. Now, if you consider the long-term prospect of um, selling down state assets, for example, and the need to have um, a more profitable and a return on that, that investment, then we are potentially looking at quite an increase in electricity. So if you, if you kind of look back 10 to 15 to 20 years, uh, low-cost electricity has always been a plus, for our country. We are facing possibly significant increases in that area and that's possibly one of the only natural advantages that we have as a producing nation and it's something that is, is of fairly serious concern. Southland is banking on using its significant energy resources to underpin its economic future. But as my colleague Juliet Larkin is finding out, the big energy projects in Taranaki are no more likely to attract people to the regions. The region's economic agency venture Taranaki is predicting the population needs to grow by at least 14,000 workers in the next 20 or so years just to keep up with basic economic growth. Unemployment levels are among the lowest in the country, hovering below 4%, and there's a shortage in skilled workers. In the bustling downtown area of New Plymouth, the chief executive of venture Taranaki, Stuart Trundle, sets out how important it is to keep people living in the region. In inevitably, government funding is often based on population modelling. So with such strong growth forecast for Auckland, uh, for small provincial areas to continue to uh, receive their current levels of funding, they need to keep pace with the same growth as Auckland. Otherwise, they will see the allocation declining. So that will affect funding for health, education, infrastructure such as roading. He says the region is working to reverse the flow of people, ideally with an increase in population of more than 25,000 by 2035. The Taranaki diaspora, and by that those are people who affiliate back to Taranaki, have family and whanau connections back here. If all of those people just returned home, we can meet all the growth needs of this region over the next 25 years. So it's really um, stretching out to family and friends and saying, it's time to come home, your region needs you. But it's in the smaller towns of South Taranaki that the need for young people is particularly felt. One such town is Hawara. A retired economic advisor from the District Council, Donald Stockwell, has his home here. He explained to me the difficulties in providing employment. We have a major problem with the population in the rurals, rural area as well as in the towns. Hawara, at the best we could hope for, would be a stagnant period, unfortunately. Uh, we'd like to see growth, but um, young people, we have... a plenty of opportunity for young people as much as Fonterra provides a lot of work opportunities, particularly with people in degreed areas. We have a lot of work, 
but it tends to be the semi-skilled stuff like the three freezing works in South Taranaki. He believes the way forward is for what he calls wealth creators to build businesses which add value, such as micro-dairy factories producing specialist cheeses. Back in New Plymouth, the engineering firm ITL is doing all it can to attract and keep staff. Good morning, ITL. You're speaking with Andrea. Inside, there is no machinery, but offices where engineers design and project manage gas processing equipment. The director, Kim Gilkinson, says the company has grown from nine staff to 125 in the past 10 years. One of the reasons that we, we decided to grow when we did was because that the people were you know, going to be ageing, we weren't going to be wanting to work forever. So we have to bring in younger people to take over that, the business and also have that knowledge so that they can. You have to be proactive. We bring in cadets, we've set up, help set up a programme for engineering diploma and industrial design um, certificates. About a third of ITL staff come from the region, a third from other parts of New Zealand and a third from overseas. She says it's essential local government continues to make the region an attractive place to live so people will keep coming. That's something that John Cunningham, named as one of the country's 10 positive ageing ambassadors by the Office of Senior Citizens, agrees with. He's been instrumental in getting the New Plymouth Council to start planning for the demographic change, which could result in the region having a median age of 43 and more than 20% of the population over the age of 65. But he worries that new legislation to restrict local government to so-called core spending will halt that. That'll be crucial. This council began that in 2003. 2004 when they became part of the positive ageing strategy for New Zealand. So they've got a foot in the door. I hope they keep going. He says positive ageing is about planning and an attitudinal change. We've got to value and make use of our older people in a positive way, include them. They've got the skills and the knowledge which they've built up over a lifetime. Why not put it to greater use? Despite the region's wealth, the South Taranaki District Deputy Mayor Alex Ballantyne sees another side and believes a healthy community must take care of all members. In the small town of Altham, he's seeing a man about fixing the stage at the town hall. I run an advocacy service for beneficiaries in my spare time and it's becoming harder and harder for people to, some people to simply meet the bare necessities, let alone what they should be doing for their health, etc. So that's one challenge I can see. If that doesn't improve, um, all these statistics we're chasing, such as life expectancy, etc., will continue to get worse. And do you see a lot of older people who are struggling? Yes, I do. Yeah, more and more are, are seem to be slipping through the cracks and not being noticed by neighbours. However, the outlook for Taranaki's future is mostly positive, with those I spoke to saying it has a strong, self-sufficient community and a solid economic base. And Kim Gilkinson from ITL says the EDGE has always been the lifestyle it can offer. Things like the uh, Arts Festival and the WOMADS, as well as the sporting features, really do go a long way to making sure that, that we can attract the right people. The Gisborne region is also looking at its point of difference to help grow the region, as my colleague Hugh Chappelle found out. If we look at the uh, net new electricity connections on our electricity network or the, uh, the growth in energy consumption per annum, they're, they're pretty static to, to zero in, in terms of growth. And so 
it is a real challenge that we um, that we do need to address in terms of how do we deliver economic growth in this region. Gavin Murphy, who chairs the Gisborne Chamber of Commerce. He says agriculture and horticulture have always been the basis for the regional economy, but the latest success story is forestry. Two million tonnes of logs a year are exported through the Gisborne port, with several hundred thousand tonnes processed locally. Certainly the forestry industry has been a, a, a major success story in this region, so it's a question of, from the Chamber's perspective of how do we support forestry's continued growth and get some other industries happening. I think oil and gas exploration that's just starting in its, in its you know, relative infancy here is a big opportunity. So uh, making sure that this community does everything to support them developing a, a, a large, thriving uh, you know, economic business in this region is really important. You know, if we can only capture a fraction of what's happening in Taranaki, that would be a massive growth opportunity for this region. Dukin, New Zealand, which owns 25,000 hectares of forest in Poverty Bay and on the east coast, and operates a timber mill near Gisborne, employs more than 500 people. The general manager of forests, Sheldon Drummond, expects the forest industry to grow by at least 50% in the next 10 years, which will mean increased job opportunities. But he says given Statistics New Zealand's prediction of slow population growth in the region in the next 20 years and an ageing population, it's going to be a challenge for forest companies to find a sufficient number of skilled young people to employ. That's up to the forest industry really to make itself attractive enough for those young people to want to come back into the industry. The sort of things that we're doing currently is rapidly mechanising and automating uh, processes like felling trees, like extracting trees off the hillside so that instead of hard physical labour, often in suboptimal conditions that young people don't seem to like to work in these days, we're putting people into machines, air-conditioned cabs, computer controls, that kind of thing, so it's a, it's a much better kind of work and lifestyle choice. Gisborne-based leader brand is one of the largest growers, packers and distributors of fresh vegetables in New Zealand. It employs about 250 full-time staff, plus up to another 300 seasonal workers during the peak of harvesting. The general manager, Richard Burke, says the predicted population makeup is a concern for the company and a challenge. He says Liederbrand will have to be proactive in convincing school leavers that it can offer them an attractive working environment. Yeah, the cost of someone training themselves is becoming an issue these days, in my view. You know, and, and where there's opportunity for people to get uh, on-the-job training, uh, that's attractive to people. We have to be very smart how we do that, how we offer that. You know, people don't understand what's available in this industry. You know, the technology that's there, the, the opportunity and roles that are there um, is hugely different to what it was. They just see horticulture as a very basic sort of industry and it's changed a lot nowadays. So, yep, we've got to get out there and compete for that um, and prove that, that, you know, we can offer a career for people. The wine industry has been a major economic force in the Poverty Bay region since the 1970s. But the Gisborne Wine Growers President, John Clark, expects there'll be little expansion in the next 20 years. He says an ageing population and fewer young people should have a minimum impact on growers and wine companies. The sorts of people that we're looking for in the industry and will be looking for down the track are younger uh, graduates who've done some um, academic theory around the wine industry, be it from a winemaking perspective or even from a viticultural perspective. 
I mean, there is a view emerging in our industry that if you're going to be a vineyard manager or a bit of culturist down the track, you're going to have to have some tertiary education. The Gisborne Mayor Meng Foon is confident about Gisborne's economic growth. He predicts Treaty of Waitangi settlements will lead to a surge in Māori businesses and new employment opportunities for young people. We've got Ngāti Pro with about 180 million, Rungo Whakata, Ngāi Tāmanu Hiri, Teitanga Mahaki, Ngāriki Kaiputahi and Whānau Akai. Their, their collective is about 80-odd million dollars. So the primary growth would be in iwi businesses. And so we're going hard out supporting um, iwi in our district, as well as other businesses if they want to come on board. However, Pene Brown, who's the deputy chairman of the iwi collective Turanganui Akiwa, doesn't expect treaty settlements to provide an economic bonanza for the Tairawhiti East Coast region. Gisborne is a hard place to um, put together proposals and projects, and the mere fact that you have money doesn't make it any easier. Pene Brown says even getting Māori tourism ventures off the ground is a struggle because of the small population base. Gavin Murphy from the Chamber of Commerce says businesses in the Gisborne East Coast region would welcome some government assistance to help drive economic development. But he says for long-term and sustainable growth, investors need to take the risks themselves. And that line of thinking gets the support of the Economic Development Minister, Stephen Joyce. He rejects any suggestions that central government has done little to help the regions. I've been round, as I say, pretty much to every region in the country in the 12 months since I've had the economic development role. And yes, we have the discussions about, you know, for example, um, dear old Tim Shadbolt, Mayor of Invercargill, saying to me, you know, you shouldn't allow those people to live in Auckland, you should make them come and live down here. Um, and, um, and that's all good. But actually it's all ultimately about the, 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 the competitive attraction of those regions. I, I have to say I did feel coming in that there was a little bit too much of somebody make a wave a magic wand and make it happen for us. Now I think 12 months on after a range of discussions that actually regions and councils are taking more responsibility for the things that they can do to attract and retain businesses than perhaps they did even 12, 24 months ago, because it is a geographical play. If I'm an investor in a business, why should I set up in Palmerston North versus New Plymouth versus Auckland? Mr Joyce says the government does have a role to play in infrastructure to support development, and he highlights the rollout of ultra-fast broadband and investment in transport. But the Labour Party's finance spokesperson David Parker believes more is needed to make sure all of New Zealand prospers. This includes policies to encourage more money into manufacturing, tax incentives to help with research and development and moves to improve the exchange rate. Mr Parker says warning signals shouldn't be ignored. You leave behind areas that would then be in decline, which is not good for them. And I'm also not someone who believes that New Zealand can get wealthy on the back of success in our main centres alone. Uh, I think that we will do better if all parts of New Zealand are succeeding and in order to do that we need the policies that make all of those parts of New Zealand succeed rather than just a subset of them. Mr Parker says those leaving the regions are often heading for Australia. He says demographers report this is making New Zealand's ageing population age even faster. Economist Jason Luang-Wai is a firm believer in the importance of the provinces, describing regional development as absolutely necessary to growth at a national level. But he says the provinces have to also believe in their own future. 
It comes down to the leaders and the, and the people within those communities. So if you've got a strong community and strong leaders, then you'll have a positive approach. If you don't, then chances are you'll be quite negative. The next report on population projections isn't due until 2014. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. Additional reporting for this programme was by Steve Wilde, Juliet Larkin and Hugh Chappelle. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.